Hey guys, do you have a screenplay you need feedback on? Well, you are in luck. I, Julio, the half of the contrarians that speaks with an accent, I'm doing official screenplay coverage now. And if you're a listener of the show, you'll get a discount. Just email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com and tell us which is your favorite episode of the podcast and why. Turnaround is about two weeks and you'll get detailed notes that are even more thorough than what we do in the show. Although it'll also be less funny. For more information, email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com or visit our website, wearethecontrarians.com, and click on the Julio Reads Your Scripts link. Your voice is beautiful. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Okay, we are recording. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, episode number 41. Holy cat! no, 42. Juno is 41, which we haven't posted That's yet. That's right, but. yeah, okay. Excellent. It's been a, a tumultuous few months for myself and Julio, and uh, by the way, Julio, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. I, I finally, I'm not going to say things have calmed down, but maybe they've slowed down a little bit. Yeah, okay. Well, again, my name is Alex, of course, Jiren, here by Julio, and yeah, it's been a, a rocky road here for a few months with us. We've been kind of finagling all these different uh, episodes, bonus episodes, lineal episodes. I mean, between script writing and WrestleMania, it'll jostle your your season for you. Yes. At some point, I just I just forget what is it like. I'm writing something, and I'm like, am I supposed to be a contrarian here? Do I forget? <laughs> I, I forget like what's really good and what's really bad. So that that's uh, speaking of being a contrarian and when to be serious when not to be that kind of brings us to this episode we were originally going to do sucker punch for this episode uh directed by Zack snyder and you know a lot of what we do here is all and i mean not a lot of pretty much all we do here yeah is is meant to be taken with a spoonful of salt or uh, sugar depending on your vice um with that in mind you know we a lot of times express legitimate opinions about things and stuff like that never to the point of you know judging a person or anything like that but based on recent events with Zack snyder we didn't really feel it was appropriate to kind of jest about something he's made yeah no we probably we'll we'll hold off on sucker punch or whatever Zack snyder we decide to do for for a while yeah i mean with that being said it's fucking awful what he's having to go through and we've poked as much fun at you know dawn of justice and some of his films as anybody on here but um it's a shame to see him have to step down because he clearly had a passion invested in that dc project and for such a tragic thing it, i really feel for him what i really like i guess it just like taking us a little off topic from like what we're actually gonna do in this episode but what i really like is that suddenly there's this behind the scenes look where like he's buddies with joss whedon he could just like he was already like 
he had brought him in apparently to to help him with the reshoots and whatever. And then that, he just he can just be like, "Man, I can't do this. Can you just take over for a little bit and just finish it?" And we don't. It's like, "Yeah, sure." That was and, pretty startling to me, like to think because you you automatically have the idea that. The guy with the DC universe and the guy with the Marvel universe, they can't be buddies. Right, right. I just love the fact that fan reaction, you know, it's like if you're a human being, your first reaction is like, God, that sucks what he's going through. And then your second reaction is like, oh, my God, just Whedon, didn't he do the Avengers? Now he's doing JLA. And it's just it's it's pretty funny. Uh so I, I just I gotta like to see that behind the scenes in the industry where suddenly it's like you know what you have the DC people talking shit about Marvel and Marvel talking shit about DC but it's all playful because really yeah. it's like they don't give a shit they're just like working and they're friends and you know oh well, that's it it's movies it's it's something we do to pass the time it's fun it's not and it's like in this podcast it's not real yes life. there is like that quote from Snyder where he's like you know it's going to be, you know, I love the movie and I'm proud of it. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's just a movie. Yeah. <laughs> I can just see some fanboys just smashing their heads against the wall. <laughs> no, it isn't. It's my life. Yeah. It's all a lot in a lot of ways superficial. Um, and like with us, we're here to have fun. I do that big, long, dramatic opening to say love each other, take care of each other, and, you know, smile, have fun. Because life is short and fleeting speaking of having fun oh my god speaking of having fun uh we are here today for episode number 42 to grace mcgee for the first time he's been discussed many times on this podcast yes i guess if you gotta replace Zack snyder with with another uh filmmaker that has been mentioned as much as Zack snyder in this podcast mcgee mm-hmm. i think it's a it's a pretty good choice a lightning rod for controversy mcgee a grown man who insists people call him McGee. I think he's earned it. I think so as well, especially after this uh, seminal romantic comedy from 2012. Uh, we're here today to um, experience This Means War, starring Reese Witherspoon, Academy Award winner Reese Witherspoon, Tom Hardy, and Captain Kirk himself, Chris Pine. Tom Hardy. I think that you're bearing the lead there. Because <laughs> really, the main thing here is that this this is probably... Unless I'm missing a movie, this is his one and only romantic comedy. Bronson. <laughs> uh, yeah, this was his one... This is where he he dipped his toe in the water to see what would happen. Just to show us that he could do it. Exactly. I think he nailed it on the first try, so he's just never seen a point in coming back. Bigger, better things. Uh, with a rating of... 26% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think a lot of the critics missed the missed the point, missed their mark. And that might have been also cuz I get the feeling Tom Hardy obviously I don't know him personally, but just his persona, his movies, I I get the feeling that he has no patience for fools. And you 20, think? yeah, he looked at that, he said 26% Okay, obviously you don't get it, so I'm not even going to bother with romantic comedies anymore. You're not worthy. Yes. So, 20, 30 years from now, when This Is War is getting his criterion, its criterion release, and maybe people are asking for another Tom Hardy uh, romantic comedy performance, well, by then it'll be too late. They'll, they won't know what they... They don't know what they have until it's gone. Oh, no. So what do you got for us, Julio? Uh, okay, so 26% means that these are all rotten... Um, starting with Tom Huddleston, not Tom Hiddleston. Tom Huddleston. I'm sure he has a lot of fun at work. Uh, from Time he's Loka. 
and he's low key. Like he's, <laughs> he's pretty pretty laid back. Uh, he says yet another case of Hollywood execs trying way too hard to give the audience what they think it wants. Anthony Lane from The New Yorker says the director is McGee, who allows no motion to pass without a musical energy boost. Like, that's a bad thing. I know. Colin Covert from Minneapolis Star Tribune says this means war is the worst McGee film yet. And good lord, that is saying something. There's so much wrong with what he said, I can't even start. Uh, Mark Pfeiffer from Real Times Reflections in Cinema says... Love is a battlefield, and this means war, and the three likable leads are the casualties. Aww. Finally, Jack Jones from Little White Lies says, No, period, more, period, McGee, period, please, period. That's a bit much. You know what, Jack Jones? Joke's on you, because he went on to make more movies and rack in the dollars. He definitely did rake in the cash. Um, this means war is a story of two CIA agents, uh, FDR, played by Chris Pine, and Tuck, played by the romantic comedy debuting Tom Hardy. And it starts off with them in Hong Kong, and they're trying to locate Carl Heinrich, uh, played by Till uh, Schweiger. Um, he's basically a foreign bad guy in almost everything. He's, as we discussed, uh, most notable for his role in Inglorious Bastards. And I also remembered him from uh, SLC Punk. But he is in Hong Kong to acquire a, a weapon of mass destruction. And he's basically, from what's set up in the first you know, two minutes of the film, one of the most notorious terrorists on, on the planet. The first two to five minutes of the movie, which are basically like a mini version of a James Bond movie, only done better than any of the James Bond movies have done in forever. Mm. Uh, maybe ever, even. R.I.P. Roger Moore. Yeah, I mean, well, here's the thing. You have two Bonds for the price of one, because you mm -hmm. have Pine and you have Hardy uh, looking really good, uh, oh, yeah. knowing their way around their weapons, knowing their way around the ladies, and knowing their way around their bad guys, because they, they just eliminate 99% of the bad guys in that scene, except for the main bad guy who runs away. Yeah, so he has his meeting with these gentlemen in Hong Kong, and they take off, and they try to go after him, and they... Uh, kill most of his men, and they also kill his brother Jonah, and that's basically, you know, the the smoking gun um, at the beginning. There is uh, Heinrich vowing revenge for his his fallen brother, and he's gonna get these two honkies and kill him. He he falls to his knees and goes, "Mickey, <laughs> I gotta get you. I'm coming to get you." He he vows revenge, and no matter what the cost. Um, so that's it's almost like a fun little uh, short film that opens it. It's kind of right. like Drive, like this fun little short film opens us off. Uh, and we immediately go into kind of establishing the personality of both of our main characters. Uh, FDR, again, played by Chris Pine and Tuck, Tom Hardy. Um, they are, you know, two different sides of the coin. They, they're brothers, but they are cut from a different cloth. As FDR is just, um, he posed. He's Chris Pine. He's Chris Pine. His apartment as FDR is what I assume his apartment is in real life. It's the roof is a swimming pool with models swimming in it constantly. He has just one of those infinite, uh, infinite fireplaces that just keeps going. He poses as a ship captain, but man, he's living life. Yes, that's uh, he's the ship captain of a spaceship or something because he's yeah. There's no way I don't know how much ship captains make, but there's no way that uh, they can afford the the living that, that Chris Pine is is doing here. And they're in L.A., right? I think so. Yeah. So he would have like the penthouse apartment somewhere in downtown L.A. So <laughs> yes. yeah, he he must have he must be building things for NASA. That must be his ship captain. 
Uh, Tuck is a lonely single father. He has a, a modest apartment. Um, it's basically a warehouse that he trains MMA in part time. Um, but you know, you really feel for him. You know, he he has a much more modest uh, secret identity. He's po- he's a sad sack, which yeah. I don't know if, if uh, Hardy had played up till this point. Or ever since. I don't know. I, I, I think Tom Hardy, I don't think Sad Sack. Whereas like when I when I think Respine, I think Womanizer, yeah. slick, smooth guy. Um, but that's good because really this is about Hardy stretching his acting muscles, not Pine. I mean, Exactly. I, Tom Hardy takes himself to a place here he's never been before or since. Yes. Um, he does have the, his child and his uh, – they hadn't been married, but his, basically his child's mother, Katie, who he clearly still kind of wants to get back with and – you really do feel for his life situation. Yeah, it's like you're Tom Hardy, but somehow you're not on top of the world. That's like, something. Something feels wrong about that. It's something only. It's a narrative only McGee could craft and pull off. Yes, pulling off. I think that's the main thing because how the, I think a lesser director would have trouble making us believe this. But I'm like, no, oh, I buy it. I buy Tom Hardy as this guy that somehow does not have his shit together when it comes to his love life. Because as a secret agent, he's amazing. Yeah. Um, we're introduced to the love interest of the film, uh, Laura Scott, played by Academy Award winner Reese Witherspoon, uh, her best friend Trish, played by Chelsea Handler. Uh, the first real impression we get of Laura, she is a product tester. She works for a company that basically holds focus groups, tests products, things of that nature. But you get the impression right off the bat that she is single and that is further solidified where uh, her first scene outside of the office, she runs into her ex, Steve, who is now engaged, and it kind of sends her into a tailspin. Yeah, I like it that uh, McGee has a very nice balance here of uh, familiar romantic comedy tropes, like the classic, oh, you know, I'm going to have an embarrassing encounter with my ex who's doing really well while I'm dressed terribly with my sneakers slung on my shoulder and no makeup, and I'm about to go eat by myself and uh, I'm going to have to lie about how I'm meeting my super successful boyfriend and whatever. That's, I mean, it works because Reese Witherspoon is a great comedic actress. Mm-hmm. And because uh, formulas work, that's exactly. why you keep using them. But at the same time, uh, it's surrounded by these elements that we're not uh, familiar with, that we're not so used to. Like, again, Tom Hardy just being a loser. Uh, <laughs> But it, it really also sets up very economically. We're, what, 10 minutes into the movie maybe, mm-hmm. 10, 15, and we already have the playing field and the players, and we are really going to explore three very damaged people over the next 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's that's good directing. Uh, everybody criticizes McGee when they criticize him for being a bit of a show-off. But I think this is very subtly he's he's establishing uh, what the movie is going to be about, and that is the reality of dating and yeah. the nightmare that it is uh, once you get to a certain age. And Chris Pine, uh, FDR, the only one with the real overwhelming confidence to just keep going out and going for it, whereas uh, due to Laura, you know, due to her being completely shattered by her previous relationship, uh, Trish tells Chelsea Handler talks her into getting an online dating. And Tuck, due to his, you know, basic just sad sack nature, uh, and after asking his uh, son's mother out on a date again and getting turned down, Katie says no. He resorts to online dating as well and, of course, links up with Laura right away. Yeah, here's something I really appreciated, and that is that we did not get bogged down on the really boring online dating stuff. Mm -hmm. You see them have a profile, 
you see uh, Reese Witherspoon see uh, Tom Hardy's profile on her thing. And that's it. We did not get... We didn't have to go through like these bullshit first dates. Yes. The, the, other romantic comedies would have gone through the whole email process and, and, and tried to wring drama and comedy out of the shenanigans of online dating. But this movie is beyond that. McGee does what is so bold in that he shatters the Aptow mold. This isn't a two and a half hour movie. He keeps it 90 minutes on the dot. He knows what he's working with. This is not, guys, we're going to have fun for 90 minutes. Mm. We do not have to suddenly find the meaning of life. Life's short. He knows. Give it to the people. Give it to them quick. Yeah. Can you believe that guy was, uh, one of the quotes I read was criticizing him for giving people what they want. Uh, Exactly. And this is what people want. Just they want to know. Give them the score. That's what they want. I want to know these two guys, this girl, 90 minutes, give me who she picks. That's it. That I know what's going on. I can handle this. Let's roll with it. Uh, so with FDR being his best friend, he's a bit worried about Tuck doing online dating. He says, you know, uh, and given also their position, the CIA, they have, um, uh, shall I say, advantages and options at their disposal that most of us don't. He says he wants to be by to make sure nothing bad happens. So I, I believe he said two blocks away, he'll be waiting in case anything goes wrong. So the first date with uh, Tuck and Laura goes wonderfully. You know they they hit it off right away. They're smitten, um, and they separate. Everything's good. She exits out. She goes down two blocks, and wouldn't you know it, she goes into the same video store that uh, FDR's in, stationed in for the call. Lovely period detail. Them having their meet cute at a blockbuster, I guess, or a blockbuster stand-in. Would have been the death rattle in 2012. Would have been right at the tail end. So I'm glad McGee made a point to get it in. To just you know. To make the audience, especially in our age bracket, comfortable, make us feel warm watching this. Yes, we, he knows that we know what that means. It's not just that they're meeting at a blockbuster or blockbuster stand-in, but also they're talking, when she meets with Pine, they're talking about Hitchcock movies. They're talking about classic movies. These things that you wouldn't think these characters were capable of. Right. And no, certainly but, this wouldn't just be written in for no reason. Oh, no, 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 no. It's, uh, it's just, I think that the, the reason is, like you said, to make us comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it certainly does, uh, but they hit it off right away, and you know, to both of their uh, naivety, they don't know where each other just came from. Right. So everything works out, though. This is where Chris Pine's character, though, I think he, I think he assumes the role of the hill in this film because he's the first one that starts using. Uh, government property to kind of seek out this woman well you see him as really confident but really that's just a a facade he's really incredibly insecure uh once he meets somebody that matters to him because then he has to resort to his government uh assets and equipment but at the same time you could also chalk that up to just love at first sight when you know you know oh yeah yeah because he later in the movie makes a point of saying that he's never been in a situation like this before Mm -hmm. um so basically, it all comes to a head, and they're both, you know, talking with this girl, flirting with this girl, and they both notice each other at work. They sit right across from each other. They have their cubicles that uh, run parallel, and they both see that each other's happy about a girl, and they say, "Hey, well, let me, let me see her." And as best friends do, they, you know, I'll show you yours if you show me mine. And we have this awesome kind of like quick draw scene of uh, let's show each other at the same time. I don't know if it was planned as a trailer moment, but you might remember it as a trailer moment. Oh, I definitely remember it as a trailer moment. And it's one of those things that I don't think when this movie was being made, they made any moment in this movie specific for trailers. But, you know, Serendipity and Destiny 
have no rules. They just work out the way they do. Right. And that's just, I think that when, when McG is making a movie, you could argue every moment is a trailer moment mm-hmm. because you just, it, there no, there's no dead air. It, it, it's always, there's always something happening that would be worth putting in a movie to sell it. I think he put this on paper and said, let's see how it plays. And when they called cut on this scene, he said, there's the trailer moment. And props to him because, God damn it, it worked out perfectly. That's the moment in the trailer where you're like, I want to watch this movie. Exactly. It's I don't know what could happen from here. So at first they kind of back off like, no, it's not going to be a competition. And again, the the layers of FDR's character become apparent here and make him one of the more fascinating characters in this film. He says, you know, well, if I'm involved, it, it wouldn't really be a competition. It just goes again to show his insecurity, really. And Right. He, he's just kind of – he's unaware of how much of a dick he is by saying something like that. Um, but he has to say it because that's his character. That, that's, that's the persona that he projects to the world, even to his best friend. Exactly. So she's going to go on a first date with both. Um, Tuck takes her to a carnival. Somehow they're both trained in uh, the circus. Uh, well, but later, later on, there wasn't uh, a line. I am glad. I'm sure there was like a focus group, and McGee like took note because somebody was like, "How could she be an acrobat?" Like, yeah. uh, I mean, Tom Hardy it makes sense. He's he's shown from Robin's the first parents minutes. died doing this in right. Batman Forever. But but Hardy is is trained, and then she says at some point that she's a gymnast mm-hmm. because remember Pine is asking her, and she's like, "Oh, you're a gymnast," and she's yeah. like, "You're a pig." Because automatically she assumes that he's he's thinking of sexual uh, stuff related to dating a gymnast. To be fair, that's how he passes it off. But they do the acrobat routine. Um, they both fall into the uh, safety net, and then they have this really romantic kiss. It paints Tuck as you know the sweetheart, really thoughtful, all that good stuff. Uh, in contrast to that, is FDR's first date that he takes her on. Where I don't know about you, but this was the point in the movie where I think we missed a huge boat in that uh, I wanted Chris Pine as Bruce Wayne. <laughs> he fits the mold perfectly. I I totally see what you mean. I I just I think Chris Pine is underrated. He is. We, we take him for granted, and I I can say I include myself in this group because I can honestly say that every time I watch a Chris Pine movie, he surprises me. Mm-hmm. Even though I go in thinking. I know exactly what to expect. Uh, I know what he's going to deliver. He's a pretty boy that, like I said earlier, he's smooth, he's slick. But then he has that extra twist to, to the whole thing. So when he was revealed as Captain Kirk, I was like, ah, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And then I watched his performance. and I was like, oh, but he made it better than I expected. Same thing here. Like you said, he you'd be, you expect him to be, just be the opposite of Tom Hardy. But no, he actually turns out to be extra charming. Yeah. He's not just smarmy, but he's he's smarmy on one level, but he's also really charming. But he also plays the rich playboy so well. That's why I make the Bruce Wayne illusion, because a lot of this was giving me flashbacks to uh, Bruce Wayne in the animated series and everything, how he just kind of plays the room, and you're kind of lucky to be on a date with him. Um, it was just kind of a fleeting thought that I had in that club scene. But uh, she runs out and just says, this isn't for me. Your style's not for me. And basically, this is the point where you can tell she means a lot to him. They do have like kind of the cute standoff about talking shit about each other's lives and things like that. Um, but it's love at first kiss for this one, not necessarily at first sight, as fucking Steve just appears out of nowhere again. And she needs to keep up the impression that she has a boyfriend. Yeah, I think it's good. It's a good way for the movie to remind us that it's not like she's perfect or she's got a shirt together. Because at first, you know, right now you're... 
you're at the point in the movie where you're, you're judging the guys mm -hmm. for what they're doing because they're both competing for her without telling her uh, that they know each other and they're that they're in competition. So just so that you don't automatically put Reese Witherspoon on a pedestal, you have her do this thing where she sees her ex and then she automatically feels the need to pretend that she's with Chris Pine to save face in front of her ex. Which is brilliant from a directorial standpoint with McGee because she's the only Oscar winner you have in your film, so you have to not put her on a pedestal. Right. No, you have to you have to give her something meaty, something to chew on, uh, to like, you know, have her play. Unlike this. every Meryl Streep film made in the past 25 years where it's just she's put on this pedestal. That's the opposite of the Chris Pine thing that I was just talking about. Meryl Streep, you know what you're going to get, and you get it, and that's it. Chris Pine... He's he's a fucking he's the wild card exactly. He's the white airhead. You don't know what's coming from it. So at this point, they're both really into Laura, and due to their governmental resources and basically what they have at their disposal, at this point, eight CIA agents become wrapped up in this because basically all bets are off, all the chips are on the table. They're go they're going in for it. I like that it it, it the movie places such an importance in the search for love. There is. There are teams assigned. Yes. For this. Well, government resources get wasted on bullshit missions and assignments all and the walls. time. Walls. Yeah, it's good to see them finally used for the search for happiness, which would be the most important thing of all. Exactly. So they both have teams assigned, and basically they're giving them the rundown. Hey, this is what we need to do. Uh, and they ask, how is this involved in the Heinrich case? And they say, well, that's government classified. And then we get. Uh, artistically and cinematically the best scene of the film in which uh, Laura is just kind of chilling out in her apartment by herself preparing for a movie night with a bag of popcorn and this long consecutive take of both Tuck and FDR bugging her apartment with different uh, spy devices. And uh, Yeah, it's it's really impressive because it's all one take. Uh, it's really charming because Reese Witherspoon is dancing and singing, thinking that she's by herself. As and she's like doing in this City Girl, she's just wearing a hoodie and nothing else. Yep. Uh, and but it's also the movie starts getting a little dark. You almost don't notice it because it's all so much fun. But suddenly there's two adult men in her house, and she doesn't. She has no idea, and mm -hmm. they're placing cameras and microphones all around her. If you didn't know what you were watching, if you just came in at this point, you'd think you might be watching a horror film, right? This is a, a, a political thriller. Something's going on, right? But but no, it's just a romantic comedy that has some dark undertones because. McGee is because love isn't all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows, right? And not every romantic comedy director gets that, but McGee would. So I'm glad that he he turned up the complexity on this one. His body of work aided him in creating this story. Yeah, he's he's definitely. Yeah, I think that you first think of action, you think he's an action director when you think of McGee, but there's more to it than that. There's also uh, concerns about technology and the way that it affects our daily life mm -hmm. and our future. So we be, did he do Salvation before or after this? He did Salvation three years prior to this. Right. So he still had the, the Terminator mentality in him. Where technology plays a big role here. It's not underlined. It's not highlighted. But, but there's a lot of technology going on interfering with these people's lives. And I think a lot of it, too, is um, I think Salvation was just a precursor to this. I think he kind of, you know, tipped his wick with uh, Salvation, but this is what he really wanted. You know, Salvation he had to settle for the C level Tom Hardy and Sam Worthington, and here he gets, he gets, you the know, the real deal. He gets Kobe beef, baby. He gets the filet mignon. Um, now, with all this in mind, it's still hard, it's easy rather to forget that 
uh, Tuck and FDR are their CIA agents, their partners. And so we get a scene that kind of brings us back and reminds us of that. It's one of Heinrich's right-hand men that they interrupt in a card game in downtown L.A. And basically, um, not necessarily a sting operation because they just kind of roll up and start letting the bullets fly. As as real agents do, uh, the movie has no time really to get bogged down again for, by all the the undercover work that would have to actually go through. The movie knows what the real important story is here, and that's the love affair between these three people. So mm-hmm. it'll give us some action just as, as a as a breather from the real drama, but it's just – that's the kind of stuff that McGee, Hardy, and Pine can do with their eyes closed. Yeah. Uh, the spying continues to the point where they're both kind of uh, bugging Laura together. Uh, they're listening to her go down the pros and cons of one another. And um, it's a fun scene because it gives them fodder to kind of tease each other with when they're in the field, uh, but not kind of straying away from this. Uh, at this point, you know, when they're in their uh, surveillance truck together, spying on Laura, it kind of puts this impending sense of doom on the viewer in that you realize at this point, she's going to have to choose one. Yes. It, it's, it's really good because you like them all, but you know, there's, at that time, you don't think that there's possible there's a possibility of it there being a happy ending for all of them. Mm-hmm. Somebody's gonna get their heart broken, if not all three of them. Uh, which is why I think the movie deploys its secret weapon in this sequence, as it does in, in some others, which is Chelsea Handler. Because I mean, Hardy is new to romantic comedy. Pine is he's still a guy, and Reese Witherspoon is is a different generation. Chelsea Handler is the pro here. So when she comes in and she starts quizzing Reese Witherspoon. She's uh, the grizzled vet. Right. She knows how to elevate the scene, how to make it funny no matter what, how to make us comfortable with the idea that this girl is going to have to choose between these two guys that we like. They're extremely flawed, both of them, but so is Reese Witherspoon. And Handler is there just kind of to walk us through it and make us feel okay about the whole thing. I feel in a lot of ways the scene is um, kind of takes a page out of the book of uh... – Julia Roberts and Susan Sarandon with the film Stepmom and that you kind of realize halfway through that one of them's got to go. And it's, uh, it kind of put, like I said, an impending sense of doom. You, you know, you, you're so attached to both of them, but you got to enjoy them both on screen while you can. Cause you know, by the end of the movie, one of them's not going to be there anymore. Um, after this pros and cons list and putting it all together, it basically leads to a, an elongated montage, which I appreciated cause it wasn't just set to one, track it was basically a 10 minute segment of the film that was just more of more of an artistic approach of the montage it's basically melding these dates together that she takes with both of them. going out uh, on car rides seeing paintings picking up a dog and also uh going paintballing which you know all ends of the spectrum covered here it's an interesting uh sequence also because it just mixes what you know about mcgee as a director with what you didn't expect about mcgee as a director because these are action sequences, her mm-hmm. driving off with Tom Hardy, her doing the paintball with Tom Hardy. That's those are shot like action. You could put that in any action movie and it'll look great. Mm-hmm. And then it's mixed with all the romantic comedy stuff, where they have like all the silliness with the with the dogs at the pound, and and then with Chris Pine showing her the the paintings while the her his team of of CIA That's techs right. are just whispering in his ear, telling him what to say. Uh, my favorite character in the movie, the guy that's not most deaf but looks like most deaf, mostly deaf, <laughs> mostly deaf. Uh, that's that guy's the Ethan Embry of the movie. 
I think he only gets like what three, four scenes, but he's always really funny in them. He's really giving his all. Uh, he's he's a guy that's really excited to be doing all this stuff for uh, an agent's love life. <laughs> he's completely down. Uh, Tom Hardy's team, it's I guess appropriately more like these older, fat, white guys that are kind of sat sacky like like he is. Uh, that probably have a a decent amount of Criterion Collection DVDs at home. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, but Hardy, Hardy got like the cool black guy that's always like making jokes and being funny. It, it's fitting of their characters. Uh, the culmination of this montage is one of those things. Like I said, that we've come across some dark tones so far, so uh, we needed some comic relief, and in a form never thought possible, we get it. Uh, Reese Witherspoon, Laura, her paintball gun is malfunctioning, and we get just an all-time classic gag here. We get to see Tom Hardy sell a groin shot when he's shot by the paintball gun right in his penis. I, I'm glad that it happened in this movie because obviously he he was retired from the genre after this. So if it was going to happen, it needed to happen in this one, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's good. He does it. He sells it. I it's an elevated. Uh, take on something that am sandler does all the time the only thing that was missing was when he got shot it went yeah uh he sells it and reese witherspoon sells it because many times the attention is focused on the recipient of the paintball or the hit to the groin and not enough importance is given to the person that's delivering the pain Mm -hmm. here they both she seems suitably horrified by what she just did but also amused right she can't she can't help laughing and then she's like oh i just laugh when i'm nervous Mm mm-hmm so it's come to this. She has to have sex with both of them to determine basically who the superior man is because, you know, that's how women think. And McGee's not afraid to go there. I, I, he's not afraid to be dark on any level. And, again, I just – I like the fact that he keeps – every time you think that Pine and Hardy are getting too creepy for Reese Witherspoon, he just brings Reese Witherspoon down to their level so mm-hmm. that it never – it always feels like they're all even. You never feel creeped out that they're – surveilling and lying to this innocent woman because this woman is really playing with both of them mm-hmm. without telling them. So it's just this trio of people that have a lot of secrets and a lot of uh, flaws again. So yeah, she's she's just deciding that, oh, well, sex is going to be the deal breaker. And, and that really puts them in a terrible position because that's one of the rules that they set for themselves when they started this competition that, like Hardy said, no hanky-panky. <laughs> So FDR takes Laura to meet his family, which uh, his grandma, Nana, is played by uh, Aunt May. Which Aunt is, May, Rosemary Harris. I checked. She's still alive. Well, good. Uh, they have a great day together, um, her visiting his family and you know his past and everything, and they get back and um, leads to what is presumed sex. They both strip down. They're on her countertop, her marble countertop in her apartment, which is... Uh, or home. I don't. I don't know which one it is. It's a very large living environment for one person. I know that much. So good for her. Yeah. Um, all this while the agents on uh, Hardy's team are watching. That's right. And then McGee, thankfully, tastefully gives us a, a fade to black because mm-hmm. he knows that what's going to be accomplished by showing us intercourse. N- more uh, more I mean, powers in the implied. Yeah. So it's uh, like the like the shark in Jaws. Exactly. <laughs> We're far more terrified with what we don't see than what we do. Uh, the next day, she goes out on a date with Tuck. Uh, they get back to the apartment. He knows exactly where all the bugs are, starts taking them out, and it, again, fade to black, and it's implied that she has sex with him as well. Classy. Exactly. 
And after all this, she goes back to Trish for wisdom. Chelsea Handler tells her, you know, it's about who's going to be there for you, about what you want, and um, has this oddly clairvoyant moment talking about her fat and ugly husband, about how he's my fat and he's my ugly. Yeah, it's it's the one. I, I wish more movies did this, where they give the comedian in the in the movie the one serious moment, the Oscar moment, and that's Chelsea Handler's in this one, mm-hmm. where she she doesn't make any jokes in this sequence. She's just there playing with her son and and just telling Reese Witherspoon, "Okay, this has been fun, but dude, cut it's, the bullshit." It's the fucking uh, Lester Bangs, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and um, Almost Famous. Right. Only he, this is like they don't have a phone in between them. This is face-to-face exactly making it that much more powerful uh while all this is going on and while tuck is setting up to go out to dinner with uh, laura uh fdr finds out that heinrich is in la he's come for his sworn revenge and that's basically where this movie where big g is a storyteller is brilliant you thought you forgot about it but now we're gonna fucking kick it into fourth gear here for the fucking last 15 minutes of the movie and he knows where Tuck and uh, Laura are and unfortunately has to interrupt their date, which leads Reese Witherspoon into a total tailspin. Yeah, it's 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 just delicious to see all the lies come crashing down because McGee, like any adult, knows that eventually you get caught. Mm-hmm. You lie for long enough, you can't keep track of it, and of course, it's not just that... Uh, it, it explodes in the face of Reese Witherspoon because suddenly the two guys that she was dating are face-to-face. Uh, it's just that also she, in the fight that ensues, like she ends up finding out that they know each other. Mm-hmm. All the cards are on the table by the time that this amazing action sequence is done because it's a pretty spectacular fight. Yeah. They have this big Matrix-style fight, and at the end of it, she finds out that they know each other. And she looks kind of in between them and said, I trusted you. So they're both just washed with shame. It's it's amazing. It's a close-up on Reese Witherspoon, and she's looking straight at the camera. Yeah. So it's like she trusted Pine. She trusted Hardy. She trusted the audience. And it, we didn't tell her. Right. We didn't tell her. And she could be talking to McGee, too. She's like, I trusted you. And then, you know, after the cut, thank you. <laughs> but uh, this this sequence, like the beginning of that fight, is the the one Tom Hardy moment. Remember earlier, uh, uh, before we started recording, when you were like, "Oh, that was a Tom Hardy moment." It was like there was another one, and that's here when, right before the fight starts, Tom Hardy slaps Chris Pine, mm-hmm. kind of like to tell him, "No, this is not over. We we need to talk about this." And he yeah. just that slap and the, uh, the line that follows and the look—that's Tom Hardy. Not fucking around. They're looking at the ground and then kind of glancing back up at him. Yeah, it was like Tom Hardy, romantic lead, is gone. And he's replaced for about five minutes by Tom Hardy, the badass that we know and love. And and it's quite a fight. They go at it and she takes off. Uh, She meets up with Trish in her car. And, you know, we think we're going to be led led down this, you know, romantic, uh, this telltale romantic comedy path of you know, s- sorrow and regret and all that, but not enough time because Heinrich and his men, they storm uh, the beetle that Trish drives with uh, both her and Laura inside and basically take them captive and hostage. And uh, it basically leads, the last 10 minutes of this movie are just this wild chase. It's it's an action movie that really rewards, I guess, the people that uh, went to see this movie just on the strength of McGee as a director. Because mm-hmm. can you imagine, you're like, oh, what's the new McGee movie? 
oh, this means war? Okay, I'm in. And then you are there, and you're like, holy shit, it's a romantic comedy, and maybe that's not your thing. You just went in because you like McGee's action movies. But if you stick around, you're you rewarded. St- this is as good as any action movie anyone has ever directed. John Woo has nothing on the last 10 minutes of this movie. We get this intense chase scene, mixing all the drama and excitement we could hope for for the entire film. It's basically Heinrich. All he wants to do is kill Tuck and FDR. The women were incidental to the story and, and, and inconsequential in many ways for him. And all he wants to do is get to it. That's, that's, that's why he's a real bad guy. Yeah, exactly. Whereas they want to protect her. And, of course, at this point, they're working together. You they know, bury the hatchet. They, they're taking out the hitmen, causing just horrific car wrecks along the way. And, uh, it's the price of love. Exactly. And she says, I don't think you're a travel agent. I don't think you're a, a boat captain. So she's in on it at this point. Yeah. We, she, we've brought her behind the curtain with us. She processes things surprisingly fast, but that's good because really I'm tired of when one of these reveals happens in a movie, especially in a romantic comedy. And the trope is that that makes the woman just be helpless for yeah. the rest of the movie. She's just like, huh? oh, I can't. I can't make it work in my brain no but he said right no here she's just like oh she figures it out she even goes as far as recognizing she says i'm yoko she she instantly acknowledges her part in this whole tragedy that's been playing and then she gets on with it Mm -hmm. so kudos to her mcgee everybody involved so it finally culminates, they reach the end of an uncompleted highway, incompleted highway, excuse me, and Heinrich is really the only, or he is the only person that's still in pursuit. Everyone else has been taken out. It's been dead. Yeah, exactly. Let's be clear about this. They Everybody has died. So they're on the edge, all three of them together on the edge of this uncompleted highway, and uh, Heinrich is coming full speed ahead in his SUV. They're shooting at the windows, and they both say to each other, it's bulletproof. And she says, shoot at the headlights. And it's this this point where her body of work comes back into play. She is a product tester. She holds focus groups. She knows that after 2006, um, the airbag deploy has been put behind the headlights. So they shoot them. The airbag goes out. And, of course, it knocks them out. Everything has a payoff in a McG movie. I, I dare you to go watch all his other movies and tell me that that's not true. So it knocks him out. He basically hits a, a sharp left on the car. The car skids and then goes flying over the edge, and it takes out the, the Jeep they were riding in along the way. So we come back kind of just this smoldering mess, and this is where you realize she's made her choice. Yep. Because we see, lo and behold, Tuck, Tom Hardy, sitting just alone. And she's Not she's for hugging. the first time. Nope. She's hugging Chris Pine, and it's such an elegant way of showing you who she picked. Mm-hmm. Uh, as elegant as it fades to black before sex earlier mm-hmm. in the movie, it's just the fact that when confronted in a moment of life and death, she just went to the guy that she really cared for. McGee put all his tools together in this one, and it just worked out perfectly. It works out perfectly because as an audience, you're just, you're just relieved that she chose. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And... and, and and you're just relieved that when they cut to uh, Hardy's face and he realizes what you're realizing, that she's made her choice, he accepts it. And I think Tom Hardy's such a great actor that his performance helps you accept it too. Mm-hmm. He w- he was upset, but he wasn't gutted. Right. He, by, na- by that, I think, 
I think he, like us, was just happy that the team was back together. Exactly. That he was not fighting with Pine again, that they were brothers again. He, yeah, he, and he knew who she chose, and it wasn't a bad choice. He was happy about it. And also, because this whole movie is about making all three of them better people. Mm-hmm. And I think, in a way, Hardy was already realizing that, well, this experience has made me a better man. Maybe it's time to give my ex another go. Mm-hmm. And he goes for it. And, you know, he's he's been a good dad throughout the entire movie. Let's not get that wrong. And he's kind of expressed interest along the way in his uh, ex. And basically, now that she knows, because this was broadcast on television, that the reason he wasn't around was because he works for the CIA. She's willing to give him a second shot. Yeah, she she's willing to start from scratch. She goes as far back as just reintroducing herself mm-hmm. to him. And they're starting from square one. So everything's all happy, or so we think. And then we cut to, it doesn't give us a time frame, but it's a little way, a little ways down the road. And um, Tuck and FDR are getting ready to parachute out of a, a, a loader chopper um, or loader flight. Just, I don't know where they're going. It's it's somewhere that's on the other side of the world because it's night where they are. Yeah. And he's talking on the phone with Reese Witherspoon and she's driving in daylight. In daylight. And he's proposed to her, and he tells uh, Tuck this, and he's all happy and uh, explains that it kind of balances it out because, you know, you had sex with her and I had sex with Katie. And at this point, you know, he goes into full Bane mode. And I never had sex with her. And That's where you realize that the fade to black was even more than just a classy choice. Yeah. It was, it was misdirection. Ambiguity. Yeah. Kudos, McGee. You got me. And... um. It also kind of in one last before he becomes a married man shows the true nature of Chris Pine's character and that he is just a playboy. He's a horn dog. He'll use any advantage he can get. Which is good because it always seems false when a movie suddenly in the span of two hours, 90 minutes, whatever, will have somebody become a completely different different person by the end of the movie. And mm-hmm. it's like that's not how it works in real life. Yes, Pine is a better person, but he's still a horn dog, yeah. and and he still has his past to live with and all that stuff. So, of course, he's the kind of guy that would be keeping score and would be kind of happy to tell his buddy that he slept with his wife before they were married. That's- Absolutely. But it also gives us one last laugh as Tom Hardy tackles him out of the plane, and they kind of fall. Obviously, their shoots will deploy, but it gives us kind of with a fun sense of it. I think they fall into the sequel that never was, sadly, because of that fucking 26% on Run Tomatoes. It's the rock ending where they both go to swing, and then it just fades out. Yes. Uh, and that was This Is War. Uh, I mean, all the emotions that could be garnered in a film were were captured here. Yep. I, I, I think that... Like I told you, as the movie ended and the credits started rolling, I turned to you and I said, it's a relief. I, I qualify this as a feel-good movie for many reasons, but one of the main ones is just it's such a relief to know that super hot people will always find each other. It just There's this sense of the universe is right mm-hmm. when it's not just Pine ending up with Reese Witherspoon, but also Tom Hardy getting back with a super hot ex. Uh, they just... That's just how things should work, always. You put in the work to look good, and therefore you're rewarded with ending up with a super hot, super attractive person by your side. The universe will balance itself out. Yeah. The lies, the deceit, the the deaths and the action sequences. This is just The McG. The McG of it. It's 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 kind of incidental to true love and, mm. and just destiny. And and the the thing you earn, the happy ending that you earn with hard work. 
I think that's a good note to end this on and move along to real talk. I I, I agree. Let's let's do some real talk. Trish, they're both here. You've got to get over here. I'm hyperventilating. I told you you shouldn't date two guys at the same time. What? You, know, you never had the grace nor the humility to lose like a man, do you? It's Heinrich. He's in LA. We have to get on it right now. You know, you are incredible. I really are. I have to take my hat off to you. This is very impressive. You listen to me. You have to listen. You take your hands off me. This is not a talk. Take your hat off me, mate. Yeah? Yeah, all right. Where you going? Hey, where you going? It's a movie. <laughs> Come on. It's more than a movie. It's a movie directed by McGee, written by Timothy Dowling and Simon Kinberg, which I could not find anything else that they had written. Not together. Simon Kinberg, though, it's uh, he's behind a bunch of the X-Men movies. Really? Yeah. Okay. So all the good stuff here, all the stuff with mutants, that's <laughs> Simon Kinberg. <laughs> all, all the uh, Hugh Jackman shit he wrote. Um <laughs> Released for Valentine's Day on February 17th, 2012. Uh, almost to the day, five months later, Tom Hardy would be bald and donning a uh, mask that covered his mouth for his role as Bane. He needed to get this thing out of his system. We're going to cover Romans. whatever it was Tom Hardy was doing here shortly. Uh, budget of $65 million, uh, It doubled it. Its box office turn was $156.5 million, which... Pretty good. I mean, I, you shouldn't be too surprised considering who's involved that it did a decent box office return. Um, like we mentioned in the first portion, uh, 26% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, but that means that some people liked it. The, some people did. That's, some people had to. Th- those softies. Um, made $156 million. Yeah. Uh, Laramie Legal, Legal from Film.com says, Slides by on the strength of Tom Hardy. Crystal Cooper from We Got Discovered says, in a turn of events that utterly defies that terrible trailer that's been making the rounds for the last few months, this means war actually proves to be an agreeable, dim-witted combo of testosterone-fueled action and an estrogen-friendly love story. That's kind of condescending. <laughs> Do any of these reviews sexes. mention how there's a, a a lens flare on the box art of the DVD? They, they might in the uh, later part of the review, but the quote <laughs> itself doesn't. Uh, Brian Henry Martin from UTV says, I have never been in a movie screening that had such a divided reaction as this means war. On one side, film critics moaning and groaning from start to finish. On the other, a young audience laughing and cheering through every scene. I, I, guess, could, I mean, I could see that. Just the people that were just happy they were watching this for free. Yeah. And then Helen O'Hara from Empire Magazine says, Smart, funny, and really quite hot. This is worth a look, no matter what you think of Charlie's Angels. <coughs> <coughs> okay. <laughs> to start off with, the first Charlie's Angels is the closest thing to a competent film McGee has ever and most likely will ever make. Secondly, to call this movie smart is ridiculous. Third, and looking at what I'm looking at here, and I remember what the standee was we talked about, Julio and I's previous life, or uh, together as... Managers of movie theater, we had a huge standee for this that was up for at least four months. I forgot it said it's spy versus spy. It's not. <laughs> They're both hired assassins. <laughs> They're not spies. This movie, there are good things about it. And by good things, I mean Chris Pine. And uh, the rest of it is 
kind of there. There's that anonymous guy on uh, Tom Hardy's team that delivers what I told you was the best line in the movie. Oh, the uh, entering the premises. Right. Hardy, after Chris Pine and, and Reese Witherspoon have had sex, uh, and his entire team has watched it, but Hardy hasn't. So he comes back, and he's like, so what happened? And the guy's like, uh, well, Chris Pine entered the premises. And then what happened? He entered the premises. <laughs> and in a better movie, that will be the worst line of the movie. But in this movie, that's the best <laughs> line of the movie. Well, I learned something watching this time around. As you pointed out, Will Smith is a producer on it, so it's got that going for it. That explains the completely irrelevant cameo from Angela Bassett, maybe. <laughs> I don't understand how, how else you get her to come in and do two scenes that maybe amount to two minutes of screen time. It's it's really puzzling. But, I mean, the the big thing to discuss here is that this was the one... And only foray into romantic comedy for uh, Sir Tom Hardy. Which uh, proves that at least he's either him or his agent realized that he's not suited for that kind of thing. I don't know who thought this was a good idea to begin with, mainly because Tom Hardy does not seem really into any of it. But maybe that's not that's just him after he realized, oh shit, I'm I'm I just can't do this. But he already signed in. I would imagine this was Tom Hardy's idea. And his agent was like, are you sure you want to do this? He's like, yes, this is the time to do the romantic comedy. And then they do it, and he realizes, because Tom Hardy must be a smart guy, he realizes that, oh, maybe I really can't do this. And uh, and then when it's over, they're like, okay, let's just not talk about this ever again. Let's move on to Batman. Dude, yeah, what a fucking sandwich. Uh, Bronson, Inception, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, Warrior. This means war. <laughs> The Dark Knight Rises, Lawless, Lock, and the Drop. Like, I mean, I, there's no fucking bones about it. Tom Hardy is an unbelievably talented actor, but something went awry. To, yes, it, this this movie, this role does not play to his strengths. In any way. And, like, again, just to kind of fucking put the cards on the table like we talked about, it does him no favors putting him against Chris Pine, who's so good in this role. Right. This is kind of – Chris Pine can sleepwalk through this role. Mm-hmm. Like we said in uh, Hashtag CC, this is Chris Pine playing Chris Pine, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that that's only one half of the equation. And the other one is Tom Hardy, who just – he's just not – built for this kind of at least based on the evidence of this movie on the the 90 minutes of this movie he's just not it's not a real competition yeah i mean by the time when she, by the end when she chooses chris pine you're like no shit i mean tom hardy didn't even have sex with her <laughs> that's that's how uh stacked the deck was toward pine yeah uh, like you said while we're watching maybe if they'd switched the roles it would have been a little more interesting but not only is is tom hardy his type is not suitable to the kind of role that he's playing, but also the role that they gave him is just so bland that it doesn't, there's no competition here. Yeah. He doesn't really have any room to do much with it either. It's like, yeah, that what, when he loosens up the sequence where he's supposed to show her that he's not the safe choice, it's just him kicking ass at paintball, which is, which all it just culminates in him getting hit in the groin. Right. That's like the, the high point of the sequence. Which my notes, like, I have all these things, and then in huge caps that take up three lines, Tom Hardy groin spot is what my notes say. Which, I mean... You know what? We're actually... We're 
we're talking about this movie like Tom Hardy's the main problem in it. And I mean, I think he's a big problem in it. But <laughs> oh no, if even if Tom Hardy was given the performance of a lifetime, I would still be kind of like, eh. Well, the reason we're going on that is it's the th- that's the easiest thing to point to is. What? It's like Tom <laughs> right. Hardy in a romantic comedy? Who thought that was a good idea? Right. And God bless Tom Hardy. I mean, no one loves The Dark Knight Rises more than I do, except I, I, maybe Christopher Nolan. I but... can't think of a single movie that I've seen of his where I was not really impressed by his performance. Yeah, Tom Hardy, I've seen him in movies that I didn't particularly care for, but he is never bad. Right. It's Yeah, it's kind of just weird. Like I, I'm, I'm really curious. I hope something comes out someday that like explains... If it was him or his agent or who thought it was a good idea, I I want to think that it's him because once it got it, I, I like to think that once it got into his head that he wanted to do a romantic comedy, you just can't say no to Tom Hardy, mm-hmm. and and he had the the bulk of his previous success in past movies to to just steamroll anybody who didn't think this was a good idea. And he was like, "This is what I want to do, damn it!" And and to be fair, he has two scenes where he's incredible. But they're both Tom Hardy scenes. One's a violent one, and one's like an emotionally detached one. At the very end, yeah, where he's get out of here and take care of her. <laughs> and he's he, like, and those are like, oh yeah, that's who Tom Hardy is. He's the fucking man. Yeah, I know it's a slap. Like yeah. I told you, this slap is it's pure Tom Hardy. Oh, and he's got that yeah, that distant, far away, not making eye contact with the person, but then all gaze back up at yep. him. He's fucking brilliant. But yeah, this isn't. This is not the Tom Hardy variety hour that we need. <laughs> no, no, that that movie, the, this movie would not be held as proof that Tom Hardy is is. I would even say charismatic. The Especially movie just after Warrior, right? It just he's such a force to contend with in in Warrior. Mm-hmm. He's just like unstoppable, and here he's just like a wet blanket. And then in the summer, he broke Batman's back. <laughs> I mean, with all that being said, Chris Pine is very good in his role. That's because Chris Pine. I mean, that's because, like you said, he he can sleepwalk the shit. Yeah, he's just he's just supposed to be the funny smarmy guy, and and he's just and he's charming he when is, he needs to he be. He is. He's charming. He's witty. I mean, a lot of that. He's unbelievably good looking, and I mean, those are three characteristics as to why he was chosen to be Captain Kirk. And, well, and that's what you want also in a romantic comedy. Uh, all kidding aside, I mean, I really I have no beef with attractive people finding each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of would have liked, I guess, at this point uh, in my life and also in, like, I guess, the history of film, I would like to see, uh, I don't know, you know, Hardy hook up with Chelsea Handler just because of the age difference or whatever. But, you know... <laughs> At this point, I automatically assume that Chelsea Handler is older than Tom Hardy, but it's just because Reese Witherspoon just looks so young. Then, uh, which uh, she's older than both Chris Pine and Tom Hardy, right? But also because her character, the way that she played here, you know, she's the one with the husband mm-hmm. and the kid and the life experience, so that automatically makes her. Uh, I don't think it's not that I think that her character is particularly well written, but as a character type. I'll be like, okay, I'll be more interested in seeing either of these guys have to contend with a mom that has a husband and a kid and has just experience as mm-hmm. opposed to Reese Witherspoon, who's just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, I'm super hot, but somehow I just can't find happiness. Life <laughs> just keeps, I have to get sushi for one every week. I know. I have a great job, but oh my God, I don't know. I mean, like we said, we joked about lots in the first part. I mean, Reese Witherspoon's a fucking Oscar winner. And I don't, I don't really like. I don't resent her for it. No, 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 no. That's not. Yeah, I, and like I said, when I looked over before we started, and I'm looking at it again right now. 
a very all over the place filmography she has to the point where it's not that Cuba Gooding Jr. thing where I'm like, it feels like talent squandered. It feels like she really just did things that she wanted to do. Right. And then she's, she's kind of remembered by maybe the things that you didn't like her in. And that's, that's what you stick with. I, I think so. Like that's something that went to my head. Like, but then I went over her filmography. It's like, oh my god, she's in so many things that, that I, I love, like. <laughs> like fucking Election and Mud and Water for Elephants. Uh, I mean, yeah, and and here she, there's nothing bad. She does the classic Reese Witherspoon legally blonde performance that people want from her. Right. It's not her fault. I mean, that's just the way the movie's written. Mm-hmm. The, the movie's constructed to where she can only do so much because if she was any smarter, then the plot wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. So she has to be completely oblivious <laughs> to the fact that these two guys that she's dating know each other and and are lying to her the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just she's constrained by that. She can't. She's not allowed to be a better character than that. Yeah. But again, that's really no fault of hers. And again, the only the main thing as far as problem goes is just writing. At the same time, it's a movie that made money and all that shit. You can take into consideration. Um, it's just, it's not particularly good. Well, I think that a way, because I was thinking about this as we headed into the climatic, I don't know, 10, 15 minute action sequence, the big chase and whatever. That's the thing. Like they, you forget, like literally the only like story arc as far as their job goes and like ramifications of being killed. It's the first five minutes and the last 10 minutes of the movie. Right, right. But it's such a, it, it, it actually, I think weakens the more, or the, the, the movie even more because I think that maybe if they'd gone completely screwball and it's like, forget, don't give them a bad guy that's going to be trying to kill them at the beginning and at the end a, a couple times, like in between where they have to like go interrogate someone or whatever. Yeah. Just forget about that part of their job and just really make it about these two guys that have access to government resources to to just spy on this girl and spy on each other as they compete for the affection of this girl. If that's the only thing in the movie, I think that maybe you had a bigger chance of success. Mm-hmm. The Making it to an action movie, I understand it plays to McGee's strengths, but it's completely... You can just tune out of those scenes and... It, it's not. I mean, they're they're fine. They they, they work as they an action just movie. Like they're there, right? It's it, it's not what you. I would imagine what anybody that came to watch this movie. That's not what you came for. The most positive thing I can say about it is like in all the romantic scenes and all the spy versus spy, air quote scenes. At least those we were emoting in some way, even right. if it was just like, oh, we were still like invested right. in some way. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the action scenes were just like, all right. It's just, right. It's just autopilot. I think yeah. everybody's there on autopilot. It's it, it starting with McGee because this is stuff that he's done before, but there's no, there's really no, nothing new happens there. Mm-hmm. Even when you get to the point where Reese Witherspoon figures out how to defeat the bad she guy at the very end. I'm Yoko. <sighs> yeah. That's just... We did have. I mean, this movie... We, we groaned a few times. The, this movie is mainstream American in every sense because there were so... It, like, this movie is an extended trailer. Like, music choice, lines of dialogue, all that stuff. And that's why that quote you read about film critics groaning and audiences laughing, this is the type of shit that mainstream audiences just fucking eat up. And there's not anything wrong with that. I mean, there isn't. But at the same time, you could aim higher when you have the talent that you have here. Yes, you know, all, all of the people involved, and I'm including McG because I like some McG movies. I like a McG movie. <laughs> all of them can do better than this. So in that sense, 
I I mean, critics groaning in a way I kind of want to be like, fuck them, because yeah. they sometimes they're just petty. And it's like, well, if they didn't like somebody referenced Charlie's Angels and it's like, well, they didn't like Charlie's Angels. So they automatically are going to just shit on anything that McG does that even resembles Charlie's Angels, uh, which is stupid because the first Charlie's Angels movie is fine. I, from what I remember, I had a good time at the theater. It's the only one I didn't watch the sequel, but yeah, the second one's really bad. The first one's fine, but it's that type of thing. My with the critics groaning and all that. It's and also just from my personal standpoint, and I'm looking at the DVD box art right now with the lens flares on it. That doesn't do it any favors. <laughs> it's the type of thing where I wish it was a better point of reference. Like uh, per, what I could compare this to in terms of what I wish it would have been is a movie called Keeping the Faith with Jenna Elfman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Ed Norton. Yeah. The yeah. reason I say that is because. There's a shit ton of romantic comedies with fucking Ben Stiller in it, but that was really the only time Ed Norton tried to do something like that. Unless, mm. uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can only remember really that. Uh, I can't think of another one, but he directed. I mean, that one. Uh, American History X, the comedy. That he, he made, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Where he falls in love with a Nazi. That's and, right. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, it, correct. He directed that, but in terms of trying something and then it being memorable, not necessarily the greatest movie of all time, but you can point to something and be like, well, he tried this one thing one time and he branched out and it worked right with Tom Hardy. It's just like, what the fuck? And for the subject matter, it feels like with, like you said, the talent involved, McGee could have got us something better out of it, but they all kind of gotten on this level of agreement to where let's just tune out something that'll make money. Well, yeah. It's like they're doing, uh, uh, it feels like they're doing exactly what you'd expect them to do. Like from watching the trailer, this exact movie that you would have gotten. But they didn't communicate that to Tom Hardy because he seems <laughs> uncomfortable the entire time. Well, it's like Hardy hadn't seen the trailer, obviously. <laughs> he just he read the script and was like, I can do this. Day one of shooting, I can't do this. <laughs> it's dated so poorly by the fact that Chelsea Handler was supposed to be like the celebrity best friend. I, I haven't kept track of what Chelsea Handler's career – she's in other movies, right? I want to say she's she plays the funny best friend in at least like something else, at least one more thing. Possible. I know. I mean, she still has a show somewhere. I don't know. I I, I never got into the Chelsea Handler bandwagon, well, but it, it kind of – it reminds you of like when uh, Dan Cook was like in a slate of movies for like a little – like a couple of years, and then he just – he went back to just being stand-up. Which uh, – We've talked about this before, doing Dane Cook movies on here, man. At some point, we'll have to do uh, was the, it Employee of the Month? Is that what it's called? With right. him and Jessica Simpson? Yeah, yeah. I thought you were saying Good Luck Chuck, because I was going to say, this looks like fucking Godfather 2 compared to Good Luck Chuck. I watched Good Luck Chuck in theaters. I did too. I, oh no, I was She was say, not worth it. I, I was going <laughs> to say I paid for it, but no, I didn't pay for it. I probably just got in for free. But uh, yeah. uh, Employee of the Month, I screamed. And then Mr. Brooks, I still think that it's, I like it's, Mr. A, it's a good movie. Yeah. I mean, it's not a Dane Cook vehicle, but... I would say that Demi Moore is the weakest link of that movie, not Dane Cook. That is slap in the face of Demi Moore. <laughs> I'm about to rewatch it to see if, they agree, if I agree. I think I own it, actually. I do, too. No, I know I own it. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> this means war. It is what it is. It's a McGee movie, and, you know, like I, uh, I told you when we were watching it, if anything, you got to give props to McG. He's a guy who clearly has an idea of what he wants to see from his movies, and he doesn't do it in a way that is offensive, to me at least. There are some people, I was flipping through the reviews and whatever, and it crossed my mind a couple of times when we were watching the movie, uh, where the the whole surveillance angle of it, they took offense to that. The fact that you have these guys 
just, I guess, abusing their power. Well, we did say when we were watching it, uh, the when Chris Pine's trying to get someone to wiretap some conversation, like, what does this have to do? And he just says, Patriot Act. Yeah, and it's like, I mean... It's I the fucking point of the movie. Right. I mean, I don't think the movie is interested at all in even exploring that angle of <laughs> abuse of power. It, it's just a punchline to them. Uh, it reminds me of it. In The Departed, uh, Alec Baldwin has a similar line where they're surveilling someone and somebody says, like, oh, is this okay? And he's like, Patriot Act? I fucking love it or something, yeah. you know? Um, which that carries a lot more power than, than anything that happens in this movie. Oh, absolutely. But... Uh, I don't know. I, I think that, uh, in a way, what I was saying and, and hashtag CC, it's it still applies. It's just that it doesn't really hit you hard because the movie's just so mediocre. But it really is. All three of them start really flawed, and through the movie, they come out better people mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, it's just that you don't really care because yeah. there is still Chris Pine, Reese Witherspoon, and, and uh, Tom Hardy. So it's like uh, you were doing fine even before the movie started. Yeah, and I mean. If you're gonna get upset about that kind of shit, the spying and all that, it's that's the kind of shit where you've already like I I didn't take any thought approach that serious to this film to begin with. But if you want to go down that path, I can find you you know 50 movies that are labeled as classic movies that have some sort of like really fucked up tone to them. Yeah, and I guess I would give him kudos for not shying away from making her as bad as they are mm-hmm. because yeah, they might be abusing their government assets to spy on her. But she's also she's just basically playing with them, uh, just the same way that they play with her. She's dating both of them at the same time and yeah. not telling them. So she's a terrible person too. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean it is what it is. It's it's fun enough, and like I was saying, uh, my cardinal rule: if it's ninety minutes, it's not long enough to be offensive. It can be a bad movie, but I'm not like pissed off that I watched it. You can definitely give it that. It moves really fast. It gets to ninety minutes, and then it pieces out. It's done. Uh, which you know. Uh, keeping the faith that's the one drawback every time I think of rewatching it that movie is like two hours yeah. if not longer mm-hmm. uh, I own it it's one of the only uh, New Line Cinema DVDs I own because New Line no, not New Line I'm sorry um, Touchstone because Touchstone <laughs> you remember the, like, the thing yeah, yeah I know what you're doing it. with your hand that's yeah, like, I, I yeah, get it Touchstone they, they didn't make many DVDs I think they were sold to some other film Anyway, this is going down a path we don't need to. Yeah. Well, no, I will say I've, I've caught Keeping the Faith on cable a couple of times, and I'm like, I'll watch it for a little bit, and then I remember how much of an investment it is. And it's I'll really just... good, but yeah. That just first example that came to mind. Um, yeah, I mean, this one, it, it's it's fine. It, it's not a good movie, but I don't – it's not a movie I ever would get really mad about watching. If anything else, I can just kind of point and say <laughs> Tom Hardy is a romantic actor. It's it's funny watching him not be funny. Mm-hmm. So it's funny for the wrong reasons. Yes. And I would definitely not watch this on my own ever. <laughs> <laughs> I bought it for you. I know. And I just now – okay, so that was like several Christmases ago. And I'm just now – We did a – for our faithful listeners, we did a $5 gift exchange where you couldn't spend more than $5 on a person. And I bought Julio. This means war. Yeah. And I just now got around to watching it. Uh Today. It almost today, today, literally, I just I took the wrap off today, um, which I don't feel bad about because I have much better movies. That I still haven't taken the wrapper off, mm-hmm. so it's it's fine. Uh, but it makes me think that maybe our next episode should be uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox because that's the movie I got you that's that right. you still haven't seen, and I know that's high rated and that's uh, Wes Anderson. So you'll just cringe through the entire my of kryptonite. It. Yep. Yeah. Uh, 
but yeah, this, I mean, I, we've seen worse. Oh yeah, it it it's just kind of I hate to say it, but it just it is what it is. I I give it two stars. I I think it's probably a worse movie than that, but two stars out of five. But I I can have a good time just by appreciating how it does not succeed on most of the things that I wanted to succeed on. Yeah, I I agree with that. It's it's a movie. It's a movie. What's your letter grade? Do you give it like a D? Uh, yeah, like a D plus, C minus type thing. Because for what it wants to be, it's basically average at that. I I I was surprised. That I actually it got me a couple of times where it made me laugh when it made when it was supposed to make me laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I instantly like looked at you like I did not mean to do that. <laughs> one is the reveal of her her dating profile. Mm-hmm. She gets to work and everybody's like high fiving her and making comments to her and she doesn't know what's going on. And then she gets to her desk and the first thing she's on her computer is her her online dating profile. And that reveal for some reason was really funny to me. Fair enough. And I, I think a couple other times, but that that was it. Yeah, but Reese Witherspoon is an Academy Award winner, and she's a fantastic actress. And if you haven't seen Water for Elephants, I definitely recommend doing so. That's your Reese Witherspoon movie. Oh, I mean, if you haven't fucking seen Walk the Line, see that. <laughs> so, uh, Election. I mean, to be fair, uh, Water for Elephants is a great movie, but it doesn't hinge on her performance. I just recommend that movie because so many people just, it for whatever reason, was skipped over. It got lost in this really weird... State of transition. Yeah, I think that uh, probably Robert Pattinson's casting in that one hurt it more than anything else. But it's really good. Yeah, no, I mean, he's really good in it, but I think just some people don't take him seriously. No, and that's understandable. But yeah, uh, Election's great. And like I said, Mud is phenomenal. Um, Can't say the same for things like Four Christmases and I don't know, I'm sure. Oh, Sweet Home Alabama. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um. So yeah, that this that was this means war, and it was a movie, and we had a hoot watching it. Yes. Uh, did you want to do like is your plug Logan Noir or just Logan period, or do you have something else to plug, and we just talk about Logan after that? I mean, we can talk about Logan. Let's talk about Logan. I'll I'll, I mean, I'll mark it on the on the description of the show. I've also. Uh... I've been listening to just like nothing but o- Oasis for, like the past two months. Is it after after that documentary you told me about? Did that yeah. just get you into they're, it? They're they're just so good. And then I found out Noel Gallagher has my same birthday. Oh, and he's gonna be fifty the day I turn thirty. <laughs> One of us <laughs> wrote Wonderwall. <laughs> Did he write Wonderwall when he was thirty? He was he was like twenty seven. Oh well, yeah. you know. What have I done? He's British. You have a podcast. I never... Exactly. He doesn't even know what the... Or he didn't know when he was my age what the fuck a podcast was. <laughs> uh, I never knew they had an Unplugged album because it was never released. Uh, but there were like bootlegs of it released and everything like that. Uh, basically because Liam didn't want to sing that day. So Noel had to sing all the songs. And it's Such an oasis thing to, to hear. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So MTV never officially released it, but there's a bunch of bootlegs of it. And basically on the rabbit trail that I went down researching their history, and everything, the, the album's fucking phenomenal. You can find a good torrent of it online. So uh, that would be my plug for something to do and listen to. And as always, four-finger discount. There are episodes that Simpsons podcast I plugged before. Uh-huh. Their episodes used to be like 40 minutes long, but they're actually 
kind of like us where we took us a while to find like our stride uh-huh. not to compare the two because it's obviously different things but they've found their like medium so now they're like they're more of investments but they're more flushed out and they feel a lot more like research and stuff um but yeah logan man fucking hell i went and saw logan noir at the draft house and i put off seeing it just like i was telling you just due to the fucking peaks and valleys that have been the x-men film franchise and Logan is one hell of a movie. While I was watching it, it felt like it was filmed to be a black and white movie. And in the Q&A afterwards, James Mangold said, I would be lying if I said I did that. It just kind of worked out. Wait, wait. Mangold was at the draft house? I'm sorry. So what they did was every draft house in the country did the noir And then the one in Brooklyn had a Q&A that was telecast to every other location. Gotcha. So it was Mangold, the producer, I don't recall his name, and then Hugh Jackman showed up as a surprise. And uh, talk about killing an illusion, though. You see this <laughs> hard-ass fucking Wolverine, and then Hugh Jackman comes out, like, bopping up and down, and, oh, it's great, it's great, and it's just like, <laughs> oh, man. Um, But he told an amazing story about uh, the first time he saw the movie, it was him and Patrick Stewart watched it together. Nice. And spoiler alert, and I I love you, Julio, for not spoiling the movie for me. Um, When she turned the cross into the X, he said they both just held each other and wept because they knew it was over. (laughs) And it was one of those things because since I've been of conscious thought, it's been like 1998. Like I can recall pretty much everything since then. it, and that's that I think age is fleeting type thing. It's like this has been a twenty year investment for right. these movies, and those guys have been there since fucking day one. And watching that movie, it it took me a second when she put the cross and turned it. I was like, "What's she doing?" And then I realized it was the next. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think of the little girl? Oh, phenomenal! Yeah, she's she's great. I mean, there were so many things in the story that, like, I kept wanting to be like, mm, but then they would figure out a way to make it work and everything. And it's, yeah. uh, I didn't know that Mangold and Jackman both took a significant pay cut for it to be an R-rated movie. Um, I'm glad they did, because that, that movie needed to be radar. Well, what was great was Mangold went on this thing at the Q&A. Kind of, since it was telecast, people were kind of, like, pouring out. But I wanted to stay and see what he said. And um, I was kind of bummed no one asked him how awesome Joaquin Phoenix was to work with. But uh, he talked about when you make a movie that's rated R, you get to make a movie you want to make. If you make a movie that's anything below that, especially if it's a superhero movie, so many other people have their fingers in the pie of you have to factor in marketing, toys, like all this shit. all And basically that eliminates what you can do with it. And him and Hugh Jackman both together had this vision of what they wanted it to be. And they didn't want to make any movie money off merchandising, anything like that. They wanted to complete the story. And it was very important to them both that it had a definitive ending. They didn't want any shred of idea that he would Right. This is this is definitely the end as far as uh, at least the Hugh Jackman Wolverine is. And uh, Professor X. And Professor X is, is the that, Patrick Stewart That version. got me. Not when he was killed... But when Logan buried him and couldn't muster, he couldn't oh, yeah. put words it's... together. Oh, dude! Like I'm not kidding. I, I watch enough movies to like feel. I've watched enough to know what I think merits awards and shit like that. It's a great movie, but like that's like a 
that's to me Hugh Jackman's best performance I've ever seen him put on in a movie ever. I have to revisit his filmography, but I thought he was great. Next to Prisoners. I haven't seen Prisoners. Because Prisoners, but yeah, it's, I was just blown away. Like, after everything I sat through and listened to, and I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, uh, it's appropriate to bring it up during our uh, This Means War podcast, because uh, didn't he do that movie, what's it called, like, Kate and Leopold? That's like Hugh Jackman's romantic comedy. I haven't seen it, but just from the trailer, I mean, yeah. I get the same idea. That was him. Uh, actually, he probably has two of them. I think he has a movie with uh, think... Ashley Judd, maybe, or Catherine Heigl. I don't know. Some oh, other God. Generic... Hugh Jackman and Catherine Heigl. I could be... Maybe it's Ashley Judd. I don't know. Some other. Because uh, Caitlin Leopold is like a. He, he's. It's kind of like a period piece because he comes from the past, I think, and he's brought into the future. Hooks and, up with Megan. And Meg it Ryan. was directed by James Mangold. What? Yeah. Really? Caitlin Leopold, yeah, it was directed by James Mangold. I did not know that. Maybe I should watch it talking shit about it like i have seen it uh no i mean it's not anything to write home about neither is the wolverine which he also directed i i like the wolverine okay i think it's a it's a step up from wolverine origins and uh it's well, a nice transition into into uh logan but god can you imagine we went just from origins to logan <laughs> whiplash <laughs> People <just> like, <laughs> uh yeah it it's wonderful it's and like i said seeing it in black and white it it made it i, I mean that probably helped because it gave this, this whole artsy perspective i didn't know it was there and like i said i i don't know if i want to see it in color just due to the sentimental attachment i had to that and they also gave us um posters that you can only get like for that screening oh that's nice yeah it's a black and white it says logan noir and it's after he passed it's uh when the girl's still holding his hand it's it's really cool that's awesome yeah um but yeah that's basically uh between that and this means war i mean i'm good on movies for a while <laughs> uh well uh my plug is i finally watched i watched it last night no that's not true i watched it this morning um i started while i was at the treadmill and then i finished it once i got off the treadmill but there's a this movie called I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Have you heard anything about it? Mm -mm. If you have Netflix, it might have shown up on your Netflix when it first came out because it's a Netflix movie. Um, and they were pushing it really hard for a little bit. Uh, it's So it's directed, it's written and directed by the guy that was the main actor in this other movie called Blue Ruin, uh, which I didn't really care for, but everybody loves Blue Ruin. And one reason it took me this long to check out I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore is because the good reviews kept saying, oh, it's just like Blue Ruin, which made me, made me not want to watch it. And then the negative reviews were like, oh, it's not as good as Blue Ruin, which made me want to watch it even less. <laughs> but then I watched it today, and it's great. It's, uh, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's, I had a great time. It's uh, uh, kind of like, a, I think a more apt comparison is really to a Coen Brothers movie, because he has like that quirkiness, that silliness of the characters, and it's in a way it's like a very simple story it's just this woman that gets gets fed up she's kind of in a rut and then somebody breaks into her house and the police won't really help her so then she goes into this path to find the people that robbed her and just goes into adventures and elijah wood tags along as as you, as know, you do exactly he's her neighbor and it's just it's a very cool movie like it's it's a lot of fun and and uh 
I think that it had, at least for most of its runtime, it was trying to say something about uh, vigilantes and just because the cops really don't help her. They're they're almost useless here because they, they have bigger things to worry about. And uh, so, of course, it's like if you're somebody like her, what do you do? Do you just like take it sitting down and just get over it? Or do you try to find justice by yourself? And I thought that that was a very interesting thing that the movie was doing because mm-hmm. I kept trying to figure out, is it arguing for this or against this? And it was like, I guess I'll, I'll find out when we get to the end. And then when you get to the end, it's a little deflating because the movie chooses to just please everybody and not really take a stance on anything. So that's why I can't say that it's a better movie, uh, you know, as good as I would like to. But it's still a good time. It fits your like ninety-minute rule where I'll <laughs> take just, it. You can just watch it in one sitting, and uh, it's really not gonna eat up your day. Uh, it has a great performance. The main character is uh, Melanie Linsky, which I really I mostly know her from this HBO show called Togetherness. She was in. But then while I was looking over the trivia, I found out that she's also one of the uh, girls in Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures, which is like an old oh, movie. Wow. Yeah, she's she's the girl that's not Kate Winslet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, so she's, I mean, she's been around for a while. She She's had a career. Um, but anyway, that's, that's my plug. I think that uh, if you've been kind of on the fence about I don't feel at home in this world anymore, watch it. It's it's really it's a lot of fun. It has one of my favorite sequences I've watched uh, this year, but I'm not gonna tell you what it is because it would spoil it. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's that is my plug for this episode. Like uh, Master of None. Eh. You need y'all need to get out and watch Master of None. I I guess some of you do. I I don't know that I do. But okay, well it's phenomenal. Um, and just before we close here, I wanted to confirm that. James Mangold directed Kate and Leopold. He did. Um, Girl Interrupted, Kate and Leopold, Identity, Walk the Line, 310 to Yuma. That's what he did within that decade. And then I did not know that he wrote Oliver and Company, which I loved. The Disney movie. The Disney movie? Yeah. Wow. It's also like Mangold's been around for a while. I mean, what a a body of work this this gentleman has. Uh, Anyway. That'll do it as far as, you know, all the usuals go. Uh, Festive Years, their album Don't Let Me Use You, uh, featuring uh, our last stand, our opening song, Summer 1999, our closing track. Our email address, wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. You can write to us to defend uh, This Means War. If you think Tom Hardy brought it. If you wish that he was in more romantic comedies, it could could be. I don't know. I mean, maybe we're completely... It's not like romantic comedies are like my genre so maybe I'm wrong and maybe the people need more Tom Hardy and less less Chris Pine (laughs) it's possible anything else to add before we get out of here Julio I I tried to convince Eddie to write you an email uh, write us an email I guess because he after he listened to this is 40 episode he just went on like a 5 to 10 minute rant about everything that was wrong with your take on the movie Uh huh. and uh and I was like, how about you put this in writing so I can read it at the next episode? But uh, he just, I guess he did that thing where, like, he only had it in him once. So <laughs> once, once it was out, it's just I don't really feel like writing it down anymore. Once you have it and it's beaten out of you, yeah, you'll never so get it back. I guess the short version is he thinks you're overreacting to the entire movie. Uh, that movie's dog shit. So <laughs> Eddie Straight, come try me, motherfucker. Uh, yeah, outside of that, uh, I mean... I welcome any argument for that movie. Anyway, got off track there. 
Uh, we'll be back again. I guess we haven't really nailed down what our episode 43 is going to be yet. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We've got we've got a list of potentials. We'll piece It'll it together. be a surprise. As always. But with that in mind, I do want to thank y'all for tuning in to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. The summer of 1999.